Let me invite you to take your Bibles from the book of Revelation, chapter 8. We'll be there in a few moments. Revelation chapter 8, verse number 1. And when he, Jesus, had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with, this is important, the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it unto the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And the first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood and they were cast upon the earth. And the third part of the trees were burnt up and all green grass was burnt up. And the second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven burning as it were as a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of the waters. And the name of the stars called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they had been made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded. And the third part of the sun was smitten. The third part of the moon and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened. And the day shone not for a third part of it. And the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpets of the three angels, which are yet to sound. Our Holy Father, I pray the next few moments as we look into this fascinating, terrifying Lord, chapter, uh, Lord, of your word, that, Lord, we would, uh, to the ability that we can as humans, grasp part of this vision. And, 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 Lord, not just be fascinated by it, but, Lord, move by it. And as Peter said, what manner of persons ought we to be, seeing that these things are to come to pass? And so, Lord, I pray today we, we'd move beyond fascination and curiosity, Lord, to devotion of heart. Lord, to move, to be, to align ourselves with your great purposes, and Lord, your plan. And Lord, to be prepared and ready for the coming day. And I ask for your help with this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so very much for standing for that length of time. The events of Revelation chapter 8 most likely bring us to the latter half of the tribulation, to the period of time that we actually call the Great tribulation. This is the beginning of sorrows that Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 24. 
And most likely, we've already passed now, chronologically, the six seals that Jesus has previously opened. God's judgments of war, famine, pestilence, and death, which devastated over 25% of humanity, and of course they died, have already previously occurred. The four writers of the apocalypse have been set loose upon the earth. And now as Matthew 24, verse 21 declares, a greater tribulation awaits. The Bible says, for then shall be a great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world. To this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except these days be shortened, there shall be no flesh saved. God's judgment upon the earth began when Jesus accepted a scroll before the throne of God from the hand of God. This scroll, we don't know the exact contents. We can call it the title deed of the earth, the history of the world as regards to humanity, the coming events of the consummation. It contains the world history and what is to happen there. That scroll was bound with seven seals representing seven judgments from God in His wrath to cleanse the earth of sin and take back the earth from Satan. Jesus has undone and released six of the seven seals. Again, loosening the four writers of the apocalypse. And also in, 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 in number five of these seals, he provides a vision of the martyrs in heaven crying out to God in an imprecatory manner, in a imprecatory prayer, meaning it's a, it's a prayer of vengeance upon those who have killed them. And, and then beyond that, we see the sixth seal that provides a vision of the final consummation of the eschaton, the second advent, God's final great wrath upon the earth. Chapter 7 presented to us last week an interlude or a break in the action. It's been intense. A lot has happened. The seals have been loosed. The riders upon the earth, much has happened. 25% of the population has been decimated. And all of a sudden, chapter 7 brings us to this moment of brief pause. Four great angels were commissioned to go to the four corners of the earth. And there they would restrain the weather and to stop the judgments for a brief season. In that reprieve, it was God's intent to do a miraculous work in Israel, which remember the tribulation is seven years of yet unfinished Jewish time as described by the prophet Daniel. A great work is done there, and the Lord saves 144,000 Jewish men who are then to go on and be his evangelists and missionaries around the world. They are given a very special divine protection from, from two things, really the judgments of God to come, and from the war of Satan that has been unleashed upon the earth against God and the saints of God. We learn in chapter 7 that evidently these missionaries, along with two great witnesses, which we'll study in time, and an angel proclaiming the gospel from heaven, have a great effect upon the earth because a countless number of multi a multitude of martyrs, I should say this, people are saved upon the earth of the tribulation, and then they, then they become martyrs very quickly for their profession in Christ. So even in this incredible time of God's wrath, he still, as is the nature of God, remembers mercy. But this will be a point later in the sermon. It, it's, it's amazing to me, and I understand in part because it's the great delusion that 1 Thessalonians describes that will fall upon the earth, that so many 
millions or maybe billions of people, even in this apocalyptic time, choose not to repent. The rebellion and hard-heartedness of men is amazing to me. But with the conversion of the 144,000 and the success of their mission to evangelize the world, God now in chapter 8 begins to resume His judgments upon the earth. As Satan ramps up his war with God and the followers of Christ, so too God continues in His judgment. So in our text, as the interlude of chapter 7 concludes, and the four angels now are moved from their positions and stand aside, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only worthy one well, he loosens now the seventh seal from the scroll. And as he does, something happens that's quite extraordinary, that's very unique, that has not yet happened in the opening of the previous six seals. Preceding the opening of the other seals, there was this proclamation, this adoration, this celebration and worship of God. As they saw that God was moving to reconcile the earth, to, to, to rid it of sin, uh, the four great beasts and the 24 elders and the host of angels that surround the throne, along with the martyrs, all praise God and extol His greatness. But in the opening of the seventh seal, something happens. The heavens fall quiet. Heaven which has been filled with noise and praise and the glory of God and all the amazing sights and splendor, it all comes to a halt. The four beasts, the living ones, the 24 elders, the angelic hosts, and the myriad of martyr saints fall silent. Of course, in heaven there's no time, it's just eternity. But for what seemed to John like 30 minutes, there's not a sound in heaven. I can't tell you exactly why it falls so silent, but my guess is this is the silence of awe. It's the silence of dread. It's the silence of wonder and terror of what is about to befall the earth. In Psalm 76, 8, the Bible says, Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven, and the earth feared and was still. Habakkuk 2.20, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Zephaniah 1.7, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Zechariah 2.13, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. Silence and awe are probably the only appropriate response for the devastation that has occurred and the even greater devastation that is about to come to the earth. And all is still. The silence of heaven is abruptly broken as Jesus unfolds this seal. The time has passed. And now those John looks up and he sees something new, at least new as reported to us in the book of Revelation. John sees seven angels attending or standing at attention before the throne of God. These angels most likely represent a new and unique category of angels in God's created hierarchy. We've already seen and discovered the fascination of the four beasts, the living ones, most likely seraphim, possibly cherubim. 
We've heard about the mighty angels, the strong angels, those who withheld the weather and the wind. We've heard of the angelic host that surround the throne. These seven angels, however, like the four beasts, stand perpetually before the throne of God, awaiting His orders and to do His bidding. I cannot say with any authority or any certainty what category of angels these are. If I was to venture a guess, I'd, I'd most likely say these are what we might call the archangels, of whom Michael and Gabriel would be representatives. In Hebrew literature, these seven angels are often mentioned. Each one has a name. Of course, biblically, we understand the two names, Gabriel and Michael. They're also associated with the trumpets which they are receiving. For we know in the future that Gabriel will take his trumpet and blow it. At that great day we are waiting for, and that is the, the rapture of the saints, the parousia, when we'll go to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in the air, that will be uh, ushered in through the trumpet blow of an archangel called Gabriel. So most likely these angels are who would view these archangels before God standing there. But in the text, these seven are given trumpets by God. And the trumpets, once blown, invite a new and more severe round of judgment that will, in their conclusion, consume the entirety of the earth. So John sees this transpiring, and then something else occurs. He sees an eighth angel appear in heaven, carrying not a trumpet, but what's known as a censer. We might understand it best as a box, a plate, uh, a container of some sort. They had censers in the temple in the Old Testament. They often would, would, would light fires there uh, from the altar. And so they contained the coals of the fire of God. And when he arrives, we're not told by who, presumably by God, but this... This angel receives um, um, not just the contents of the, of, the, uh, of the censer itself, but he receives the, the prayers of the saints, incense that is to burn before God along with these prayers. These prayers we were told in previous chapters have come from the martyrs. They've had this prayer that God would bring the consummation to an end, that sin would be overcome, that Satan would be defeated, that the Lord Jesus Christ would come back. Their cry has been now for some time, how long, God, until thy judgments come, that you vindicate those of us who died? The Bible tells the text that this, this, the, the prayers now come from all saints. I, I'm assuming that's a broader category than just these tribulation saints. These would be the prayers of anyone who's asked God for vindication, to ask God to come and judge those who wickedly destroyed them. But this incense and the prayers of saints are presented to God upon the altar of heaven that's evidently there in this time. And then once presented, the Bible tells us that these, these prayers and incense, I don't understand how that works, that they ascend up to God. The prayers that all these prayers have ever been prayed, will they, they rise up to the Lord. And once this happened, a nod is given to the angel with the censer. Now empty, he takes the censer and he approaches the throne and he fills it with the fire of the altar. And uh, incredible, majestic vision. 
And the angel has these coals, this fire from the altar, and he turns, and the Bible says that he casts it upon the earth. It's, it's terrible. It's amazing. He hurls them towards the inhabitants of the earth. And the quiet of heaven is now shattered as thunderings and lightnings. In a second, great earthquake befalls the earth. These are ominous signs of the imminent wrath of God coming towards the earth. And as this occurs, immediately the first angel with the trumpet begins to blow. The four restraining angels in the four corners of the earth step aside from their restraining mission. And the second half of the tribulation begins. Fire and lightning, the Bible says, mingled with blood, rain down upon the earth. When they do this, it results in an unparalleled, unimaginable, incomprehensible ecological disaster. The Bible tells us that a third of the trees and the vegetation around the globe are consumed and burnt up. All the grass, and understand that the, not, not everything would be green upon the earth at the same time, that all the grass, all the green grass that's present at that time is consumed. So not only do we have an ecological disaster of unimaginable proportions, but as you would understand, this affects all, all the harvest, all the food. Um, right now, we're, 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 we're understanding in just the, the war in, in, in Europe, how that affects all of us here today in terms of prices. Can you imagine in this scenario what happens? And we've already had the other plagues, but an unimaginable, unimaginable ecological disaster. Then there's an earthquake. This is the second great quake. And I, I'm, I'm putting some things together here. I don't know this is how it happens. But most likely this great earthquake moves the Earth's tectonic plates, shifting powerfully, resulting in all the volcanoes of the Earth erupting at one time, raining down rocks and lava like blood upon the earth. I don't know if the blood here is, you know, metaphorical. I don't know if it's a supernatural event that God uh, has happening. I don't know if it's the lava from volcanoes. It doesn't matter. I know this. God's orchestrating all of it no matter how it happens. And all of it would be incredibly terrifying. But it is all done at God's orchestration. And as soon as that happens, the second angel blows his trumpet. And the Bible says, like a great burning mountain is cast into the seas. If the fire and rain um, was a result of the seismic activity, we, 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 we've seen this in limited uh, version in history before. If all the volcanoes erupt, this could be one of the volcanic mountains being blown into the sea. This would create an unimaginable tidal waves. We know the result of this is that the seas are poisoned. One third of all marine life dies. Can you imagine the stench, the pollution? Um, the seas are turned bitter and red. Ships no longer can function. Commerce comes to a grinding halt. No food can be moved. No products can be shipped. Anything that you would have in your home would very rarely uh, no longer be able 
to be replenished. It, it just stops. And then it just continues. The third trumpet sounds and a great star falls from the heaven, burning as a lamp and on fire as it enters the atmosphere. At some point, the star evidently disintegrates upon impact or as it enters the atmosphere because all across the world, the freshwater uh, supplies of the earth, this would be lakes and rivers, are poisoned. This great star, meteor, asteroid, I don't know, contains a poison the Bible calls wormwood. Wormwood is found elsewhere in the Word of God, and there we also know it's associated with bitterness and poison. And so not only are the seas filled with life, decaying and rotten, filled with blood, but now so too is the freshwater supply of the earth. Now men's ability to even survive with water is severely limited. And then it goes from bad to worse. The fourth angel sounds his trumpet. And now a supernatural, amazing event occurs the great lights of heaven are darkened. If you need a natural explanation, um, the smoke that ascends up from the earth, think nuclear winter, um, could be blinding the light of the stars. This event is recorded multiple times in Scripture. It's, it's the wonders in the heaven. In Joel chapter 2, verse 30, And I will show you wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Isaiah 13, 10, For the stars of heaven and the constellation thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened and his goings forth and the moon shall not cast her light to shine. The same thought is repeated in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33. In the New Testament, this, is recur this occurs two times in the book of Luke and the book of Mark. In Luke 21, 25, And there shall be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars upon the earth, distress of nations. And that's understandable given what we've just read. Distress of nations with perplexity and the sea and the waves roaring. That's been described. Men's hearts failing them for fear. The powers of heaven shall be shaken, and the shining of the sun you know, shall cease. These four trumpets just erupt upon the world, devastating what we understand uh, one-third of the remaining population of the earth. These uh, these um, trumpet judgments are um, beyond imagination. Chapter 8 concludes with the four trumpet judgments set apart from the ones to come. These trumpets are, are really organized in a group of four, a group of two, and then one. But these four, like the four riders of the apocalypse, are amazing judgments. And they cease for a moment. And now there's another sign or wonder in heaven. And the Bible tells an angel um, flies over the earth. <laughs> just, just get the picture for a second. This all happens in, 
and you look and there's an angel flying. And he's not there to comfort anyone. Now, I don't know what an angel sounds like, but it's got to be amazing and ominous. And his, his message to the earth is, woe. And woe. And woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Now look up here. Not because of what has happened, but because what is about to happen. It's not like what has happened is indescribable. But his woe is for what's about to happen. Because it's, it's even unimaginably worse. The four trumpets have brought ecological, economic, unimaginable terror and ruin and destruction that's beyond calculation. And next will come two trumpet blasts that will release and usher in a demonic invasion upon the earth like, like has, that has never happened. Demons bound with chains since the days of Genesis are loosed upon the earth. They ascend from the bottomless abyss to kill another third of humanity. I understand it when the Bible says the hearts of men fail for terror. And the last trump will contain the bold judgments, the final acts of God's great wrath upon the planet and rebellious humanity. These scenes are beyond me. You know, we, we have kind of calculated visions of these from Hollywood, you know demons and earthquakes, all these scenarios you know, tried to play out for us, it's, those will pale into nothingness compared to what will actually transpire upon the earth when the Creator in all His might and power rains down wrath upon the earth for His uh, for the sinful nature. But even these to a degree are meant to capture the hearts of humanity and we do know that an innumerable number are still saved. God's heart is always that men should repent. It's an incredible description of coming events. And as I have said over and over, it has already said beginning in my introductions, the intent for John's writings, of course, this writing was not just given to us, but to his contemporary audience, the seven churches of Asia Minor, who everyone was undergoing severe persecution from the Roman government and, and, and the citizens in which they lived as aliens and strangers. These words, ominous to us, were meant to them to in part to offer hope. That yes, there's, there's coming a future generation that's going to the same kind of persecution that you are, but, there, but there's an ending coming for you. And there's a glory coming from you. And you will be in, in, in eternity with God and God hears your prayers and He, he will judge the wickedness of the earth. And you will be vindicated from sin and in the injustice of the world. And so it had meaning to them. But for us, understanding that these things are soon to come upon the world, I just want to ask you again, what manner of persons ought you to be? We're involved in a thousand things that seem important today. 
but when the earth shakes, cosmically shakes, and rain and blood and hail, signs of judgment fall upon the earth, when a mountain falls in the ocean and wormwood comes for us. I don't imagine much of what we cherish now will mean much to us. We will be gone in the rapture, but the point being, knowing this judgment is coming, what manner of persons ought we to be today? Making application here is exceedingly difficult, at least for me. There's a couple things that captured my attention in the text that I want you to think about. The first one is this. There's something said here that maybe captures my attention more than others. It's super easy to get fixated on the trumpets themselves. But here's why I notice God in His great economy has chosen to combine the accomplishment of His will and the prayers of the saints together. In our text, God does not act until the prayers of the martyrs ascend up before Him. Then in concert with His great will, God initiates the consummation of the planet. It's a theme that the Bible presents to us over and over again. We understand this, that God is sovereign. His plan cannot be thwarted. What He speaks will be done. But He also invites us, and He has since the beginning of time, to be a part of His great plan, to be a part of His will, by praying as He taught the disciples, Jesus, Thy kingdom come. Today, God invites us, just as He does these tribulation saints, to pray to Him, to seek Him, to ask for His protection, to ask for His deliverance. Jesus taught His disciples to pray. The Bible often presents the prayers of God's people as, um, as incense coming up before Him. He also presents prayer as a catalyst for divine intervention. And in the text, that's certainly true. God does not act until the, saint, the prayers of the saints up, ascend up before Him. I do not understand the mystery of God's sovereignty and how our prayers affect His plan. I just know this, that somehow those work together. But even minus my or your complete understanding, God still asks us to pray. And when we do, I want you to get this, this picture that our prayers aren't just words that amorphously go out into the atmosphere, but so, somehow our prayers are saved. They are preserved and they are presented before the very throne room of God in this great entourage and audience. I don't know about you, but that makes me pretty sober and thoughtful about my prayer time. Amen. And to think that I'm not just praying uh, certain words, but these things are finding their way to the very throne room of God, being delivered somehow to His very presence, and He listens to them. I, I may not always get the answer that I want or expect in my time, but nevertheless they are delivered to God. They are given to him. The Bible tells the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. That's well, a catalyst. It accomplishes much. We see this as the martyrs' prayers are answered. God vindicate. And then God, how long? And they come up and God said, I'm going to tell you, the time of waiting is over. It's right now. 
When you and I pray in alignment with God's plans, it presses the supernatural power of God into our present reality. And I, as I have suggested so many times from this pulpit, you and I forfeit what could be in life and the lives of others because you and I fail to pray. Because the Bible says it so simply, we have not because we... Do you understand that you could experience a different reality, a different experience that possibly your children could, that possibly this church could? If you and I got a vision for our prayers ascending to the throne room of God, I, I, I don't understand the sovereignty of God and how this works. I'm just told to pray. People might be saved. Your family might be changed. We might see something happen in this church that we could not, never, we could never orchestrate or create or cause to happen through programs and music just because we pray and God acts. All I can say to you is I see an impetus to pray in the text. And so we should. And secondly, I want you to consider this. You know, I, I've, I've witnessed the hard-heartedness of people in my time here as pastor. I, I know my own heart sometimes is hard. But I've also, and I encourage people to this thought, never underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit to change a circumstance or a person. Now that hope is there, but there's something that's observable in our text that we need to take note of. Even in the severity of God's judgment, we'll see this in the next chapter, the stubbornness of men's hearts often stays intact. Sin just has a devastating impact on your heart. As I look at this, it just makes me want to make sure that I don't let my heart reel out to any place of stubbornness, rebelliousness, hardness, or indifference. Take your Bibles and turn over one chapter, maybe the same page, and look in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 20. I don't understand this. This is amazing to me. Angels in the sky, supernatural events, sun and moon and the stars darkened. Verse 20 of chapter 9. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor talk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. The people in the tribulation period pray, but not to God. They pray for rocks to fall upon them. In Luke chapter 16, this is an incredible story. It's a contrast between a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had everything, but he died without Christ. He goes to hell. He sees Abraham, and he, he, he asks if um, his tongue can be quenched. Abraham knows a great gulf betwixt us. We can't do that. Then this man says, Abraham, I have five brothers on the earth. I have five brothers. 
can you send one from the dead to resurrect them to go and warn my five brothers so they might repent? And this is a fascinating truth. And Abraham responds, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the man protests, but if, if one rises from the dead, they'll repent. And he says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Just transparent. I, I don't hold the fascination for the book of Revelation like a lot of people do. I'm preaching it because I, I know it's of interest. But for all of our curiosity of coming events, you know, I can do my very, very best to uh, shake you. But if you won't be shaken by preaching every Sunday, you're probably not going to be shaken. The book of Revelation teaches that a great multitude will be saved in the tribulation, but far more will experience a great delusion even in the midst of all these divine judgments, and they will refuse to repent. The three woes, the cosmic signs of heaven, the angels in the sky, still are not enough for a sinful, rebellious heart. What's my point? What a caution for us today to guard our hearts. What a caution that we're not indifferent that we're, that we're not disinterested, that we're not have a desire to serve the Lord. Again, it's so easy for us to be so fascinated by wormwood. It's pretty amazing. Mountains in the sea, blood from the sky, hail, the sun, the moon darkened. Okay, it's, it's amazing. It's fascinating. It's horrific. It's apocalyptic. But again, what God intends for us is to see that coming calamity and to live for Him today. We're supposed to respond to God's goodness, repent and live right, to give ourselves to eternal purposes here and now. And all this is about the condition of our heart. I, let, me, let me say to you, if a sermon preached on any given Sunday won't change you, neither will an angel in the sky. Oh, yeah, it would. I am telling you, it will not. Matter of fact, you are in a better position right now to respond than any of these people in the Great Tribulation. A great delusion will befall the earth. And I am telling you, if, if you will not be moved today, don't think some horrific, tragic event will move you. You young people think, well, one day I'll serve God. You might and you may not. And if you won't be moved today by the preaching of God's Word, if you can't be led to repentance by God's goodness, and who here has not been a recipient of God's goodness? It is this time, in this place, that you and I should fall on our face and our knees and thank God for His goodness, because I'm telling you, because a mountain falls in the sea, won't make it happen for you in the future. Today is the day of salvation. 
Today is the day to get right with God. If you want to be fascinated by this stuff, good for you, but rather be moved by it to serve God today while His blessings are upon you in this planet. If a love for God today and the understanding of your salvation will not move you, I don't know that anything else would. So today, let's pray. We can alter the course of our life and others. When you pray, it goes to the throne room of God. And let's do right today because God's goodness is here. If you need to be motivated by hard times, that's okay, but let's respond to His goodness, His mercy, His kindness today. There's not a better day than today to thank the Lord for His salvation and, and to commit to serve Him today with all of your heart. Because these things won't move you if the goodness and love of God won't today. Let me ask you to stand with me if you would.